Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Slate Audiobook Club's special 200th anniversary Pride and Prejudice edition, where we're going to discuss Jane Austen, her work, and Pride and Prejudice, her great novel, which is celebrating its birthday this month. I'm stepping aside for this book club and leaving it to our Jane Austen experts, David Plotz, Julia Turner, and Seth Stevenson. Take it away, guys. Hi, I'm Julia Turner, the deputy editor of Slate, and this is the Slate Audiobook Club podcast on Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, which we are wishing a happy 200th birthday. My co-celebrants today, or maybe you guys are Jane Austen detractors, we'll find out, are Slate's editor, David Plotz. Hi, David. Hello, Julia. David is joining us from our DC studio and Slate contributor, Seth Stevenson. Hi, Seth. Hi, Julia. Hi, David. Hi, Seth. Seth is in New York. I'm a Janeite, definitely. You're a Janeite? Okay. Seth, you're not planning to throw wild firebombs in Jane Austen's direction in the course of this conversation? I am so in the tank for Jane. All right. Well, It will be a love fest, but hopefully an interesting one. We are talking about this book because it is 200 years old, and yet we are all still reading it. Uh, It's a book that I've read at least five or six times. It's a book that's been made into two high cultural impact visual productions recently, the BBC version, which introduced the world to Colin Firth, or at least the women of the world to the art of swooning over Colin Firth, and the Joe Wright version starring Keira Knightley. There are books about people who read books about Jane Austen. There are advice books by famous critics about what you can learn about living from Jane Austen. There are comic book iterations of Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. My first question to you guys is, why are we all still reading Pride and Prejudice? I think it's because it's the stories are so relatable. I mean, this isn't a story about war or hunting a whale in, on the open seas or some sort of palace intrigue with a prince and a King. This is just people in houses, in villages, falling in love and getting married. And there's nothing that feels dated or or uh, out of the realm of the understandable for us. And the characters it involves are so sharply drawn and still so recognizable to us. We all know people just like the people we read about in Jane Austen's books. I would add to that, in particular, why these characters resonate with us. I think it's because there's so much irony and sarcasm in the books themselves. So much of the pleasure of the book is 
is the laughter one gets at, usually at the expense of a of a Collins or a or of Darcy or Lady Catherine de Bourgh because people are so deeply ironic in a way that feels incredibly modern. The thing that I think is hard to puzzle through is whether it's Elizabeth Bennet who is ironic and has sort of an ironic perspective on all of her compatriots and the various boobs she hangs out with, or it's Jane Austen herself and her authorial voice that adds the irony. And I think there's some of both going on, right? Yes. Although the best parts for me are the conversational parts, the parts that are in people, actual people's voices. I read it out loud to my daughter over the past few months. And what really struck me reading it out loud was that the things that lasted so well, the things that both of us took so much pleasure in were the letters and then the conversation pieces, the scenes at Netherfield when when Jane is sick in particular, when, of course, the incredible scene when Lady Catherine de Bourgh comes to confront Lizzie, and that the parts which are written sort of as straight, omniscient narrator parts actually are much less interesting and much less fun than the conversation. So I guess I attribute it as much to Lizzie and her voice uh, as to Jane Austen. What do you think, Seth? The narrator has her sharp elbows, too, though. There are, there are all sorts of very witty asides about the characters that come from the narrator's voice and her omniscient. There's something that, you know, Lizzie could not have been privy to. All the descriptions, uh, they're so couched. The way that she pokes fun at people, it's never an outright in-your-face slam. It's always a sort of indirect bank shot diss, which I very much enjoy. And I, I think I agree with you, Seth, that there's a fair amount of it built into the narrator as well as into Elizabeth Bennett's perspective. Often you'll find the narrator making some wry observation about the way that humankind is that's sort of at odds with the immediate perceptions of the characters that we're talking about. You know, when the Bennett family first hears about Mr. Bingley after he arrives in their neighborhood from their neighbor, Sir Lucas, the narrator says, to be fond of dancing was a certain step toward falling in love because Lucas reports that he is fond of dancing. And as a result, everybody immediately jumps to the conclusion that he'll be married by the end of the season. Let's go back to the character of Elizabeth Bennet, though. I mean, she is she is the heart of the book, right? What is it that's so appealing about her? She is such a what we've come to think of as a rom-com heroine in that she's not perfect. She's not the prettiest of the girls we meet in this story. And she sort of needs to fight for attention a little bit from the guys. But she has her great feature, her eyes. And she's incredibly sly and witty and arch, but in a sweet way. She's always incredibly likable for the most part, except when she makes a few mistakes of pride and prejudice, as it were. But other than that, she's very likable even as she is able to poke fun at pomposity and to recognize when people are ridiculous. Actually, I think there'd be a brilliant novel that someone could write in which Elizabeth Bennet does not marry Darcy, who she becomes not marrying because there's something which is appealing in this woman as she, as we know that she will fall into a, a successful marriage that would be much less appealing if it sort of endured as a type. Because there's a remove, there's a quality of remove about her, which is not entirely appealing. She's always the one in the corner making fun of everybody else. She's a bit reluctant to get into the mix and put herself out there, right? She likes to be the observer who's uh, whispering with someone else and, and cracking jokes about the people at the at the center of the action. Right. There's something about her archness and the cracks she takes at everybody else on the scene that makes the book incredibly fun to read. And I think particularly the opening chapters when we're meeting everybody and we're sort of eavesdropping on her running mental commentary and all these people that makes her very 
enticing as a confidant or makes her very enticing as a brain into which to be placed. But I agree, David, that it would get sort of tiresome. And part of what she learns over the course of the novel is that she shouldn't be so judgmental, right? She shouldn't have so many prejudices against everyone around her. She shouldn't necessarily assume that marrying Collins is a fate worse than death for all women, even if she finds that it would be such a fate for her. She shouldn't immediately assume that Darcy is an irredeemable character just because he didn't want to dance with her the first time he saw her. And I think, you know, one of the things that I sort of struggle with reading the novel again and again is she's such an impetuous woman outside of the social strictures of her time and very critical of the need to be married for any woman of her age and and relatively precarious financial position. And then it just kind of works out for her, right? Like the novel sort of solves the problem by just having her win at the game that she's shunned. Did that bother you guys reading it? One thing that bothered me is sort of a related point is the way that Lizzie doesn't play, right? She gets to win, as you say, but she gets to win without trying hard. And Jane Austen does not have much patience for the triers. She doesn't have much patience for the people who are really putting themselves out there. Lydia is a very, if you discount the dim view of her the book takes, Lydia is an appealing, energetic, fun-loving person who wants to, you know, she wants to advance in the world. She's not too concerned about the, what society says about things. She doesn't like the dumb rules that surround her. And she lives um, a very gleeful life. That's kind of appealing, but the book condemns her for wanting that. It condemns Collins's aspirationalism and Collins's, you know, grant desire for something more than he has. It, it doesn't really like you to show your effort. That one thing about Darcy is that Darcy, you know, never puts out at all. I mean, except when it comes to Lizzie, but he doesn't, he doesn't appear to, there's no attempt to make yourself better. And I don't like that about the book. Well, I don't know. I'm not sure I agree with that characterization of Darcy. I mean, he basically has a total personality change in response to being spurned by Lizzie when he first makes his proposal, right? Right. And then he rescues Lydia and Wickham. Okay. I had remembered that he rescues Wickham, but I had forgotten that he actually becomes more polite. Like, he saves the family from ignominy, which is a gallant act, but he also just is nice. Like, he's nice to her when he sees her at Pemberley, and he's nice to her tradesman relatives. And he he has a turnabout in his manners that I had overlooked or forgotten in earlier readings. I mean, he does kind of have to change. He almost has to change, I think, more than Lizzie does. I think you're right, David, that Lydia is a super interesting character in this book, but I have a slightly different reason for finding her interesting. So we talked about, I think, the Pride and Prejudice adaptation or perhaps the, the Wuthering Heights adaptation on the Slate Culture Gab Fest, which I'm on, a few months ago. And Dana Stevens, our film critic and one of the panelists, had a theory of life, which is that all people are either Austin people or Bronte people. It's like being a dog person or a cat person or, you know, liking the Stones or the Beatles. It's just a fundamental schism in life. And actually, Charlotte Bronte, when she first read Pride and Prejudice, totally hated it, thought it was like a tame, boring book where everybody stayed in their neatly bounded gardens and um, just pursued this in totally conventional loves and didn't get it. She didn't think it was interesting at all. And I feel like if a Bronte had written this book, right, it might be the story of Lydia and Wickham. Like, they are the ultimate societal scofflaws. They're running off. They're eloping. They're living together before they're married. They might not even get married at all. They don't care what anybody says about them. It's all about, you know, swooning, passionate feeling and not about where your family fits in the social structures. But Jane Austen cares about that stuff so much more. And I, I mean, I'm a total Austenite. I'm not a Bronte gal. But it's strange to me that that 
social structure appeals, even in a time that's much less rigidly bounded in terms of what options are for women. As a fellow Austinite, Julie, I, I totally agree with you. And I think, I think David, that Collins' sin and Lydia's sin isn't, isn't so much the striving, it's the not knowing how to behave properly and sort of making everyone else uncomfortable. And sort of the high point, the climax of the book is Lady Catherine de Bourgh's speech where she, she loses it. She loses control of her feelings and she's too angry and too passionate. And that is the killer moment where Austin unleashes this ferocious beast. And what is the ferocious beast? It's the person who doesn't have manners. It's the person who can't say something incredibly mean, but couched in an incredibly sweet manner. Hmm. I'm not sure I understand that, Seth. Can you dig deeper there? That the greatest crimes are crimes of manners? I mean, Charlotte strives in the same way that Collins does, but Charlotte Lucas is never condemned in the same way because she knows uh, how to frame her plight and and frame her decisions in a way that doesn't make society uncomfortable, that doesn't... She's not a ninny. She doesn't talk about money all the time the way Collins does. She doesn't kiss up to Lady Catherine de Bourgh in the same way that Collins does. And so it's her manners that redeem her, even though she is striving in the way that you seem to respect Collins and Lydia for. I guess that's true. And that same thing is true with Mrs. Bennett. Mrs. Bennett is, of course, a striver, but she is betrayed by her incapability of behaving properly. I love how with, with Lydia and Kitty, the officers are like the rock guitarists of their day. They're sort of irresistible to, to the girls, but the, you, you don't want your daughters to meet them. How, I didn't understand that that was the way that the military was, was perceived in that day. Haven't you ever been in town for Fleet Week, Seth? Um, I, I guess I have. I, I guess I wasn't really aware that, that that was going on. Keep your daughters away from the sailors, you're saying? I, I think that the power of a man in uniform persists as a... Uh... Seth, as the single one among us... Are you a Darcy, a Bingley, a Wickham, or a Collins? I'm pretty certain I'm not a Wickham. I'd like to think I'm not a Collins. Am I a Darcy or a, a Bingley? I think I'm more Darcy than, than Bingley, although I, I'm, I'm not in possession of such a great fortune as Darcy is. I'm not a single man in possession of a great fortune. I am a single man in possession of an apartment with an in-unit washer-dryer. I guess <laughs> I'm in want of a wife. That's a great, great fortune. <laughs> Julia, are you a, a Jane, a Lizzie, a Mary... Lydia. Well, I'm surprised you guys would even ask this question. Isn't every person who reads this book a Lizzie? I mean, as men reading the book, aren't you guys also Lizzie's? Or do you identify with the men? I identify sometimes with Lizzie's father, <laughs> the eccentric, wry fellow oh, who God. Do derives you, great pleasure he from is, He actually, on rereading, especially rereading it as a father with a daughter, is the most appalling character. He's one of the most sinister characters in all of literature. Jeez, justify. Speaking of ironic distance, he's at an ironic remove from everything around him. He has squandered the life of his children. He's squandered their fortune. He's made it, you know, he, he has a very good living, which he could have saved. He could have put money aside for them. But instead, he's wasted it and relied on them just to marry. And he married impetuously and stupidly and does nothing but say cruel things about his wife, who is a good hearted, if idiotic woman. He's horrible to his younger children. He treats Elizabeth, because she's his mental equal, with uh, respect and plays with her. But to Mary and Lydia and Kitty, he's, he's a beast. And he allows them to go off and ruin themselves and nearly ruin his life. Someone wrote a wonderful little essay in which he pointed out that if he had been a father worth his salt, he obviously would have pointed Mr. Collins towards Mary. That Mr. Collins and Mary are the ones who belong together. But he, do, he doesn't even bother to do that. And the, and the things that he says to Mary, there's a, the one point where she's playing music badly, of course, and says, oh, you've delighted us too long in this kind of absolutely vicious way. He's hopeless when it comes to actually resolving any 
problems that arise. And even at the end of the book, he hasn't apparently learned his lesson. Even at the end of the book, he's he's back to ironizing everything. It's like, oh, if there any other, if any young man comes for Kitty, what is it he says, you know, send him right up. But he saves Lizzie from a fate worse than death, in my opinion, which is which is Collins. I mean, he stands up for her when her mother is insisting that she marry Collins and he's got her back. They're sort of partners in mischief. And I think without her father, Lizzie would be entirely, I mean, Jane is very sweet, but I, th- I feel like Lizzie would be entirely lost without her, her father there to recognize her wit and in that case to save her from a terrible marriage. I think that's true, but I, I basically kind of agree with David on this. I think Lizzie's father is what Lizzie would become if she did not have the change of heart that she has over the course of the book. And I also think, though, David, that one of Mr. Bennett's great sins is having no respect for manners and for the rules of the society they live in, right? Right. He he just he wants yeah. to ignore all these rules, which Jane Austen is fundamentally valuing. So in, the, in a way, the book is incredibly conservative. For all that I like it because its heroine seems so modern and spunky, the values that it emphasizes and, and keeps returning to are completely retrograde. If you accept these rules as a given, if you accept that this is the game that we are playing, here's how to win it. But it doesn't allow for the possibility. For example, I don't know if you guys were as as sort of struck by this on rereading it as I am, just the absence of work, the complete absence of anybody doing anything that approaches labor. Mr. Gardner, the um, uncle, he has a trade, which, of course, is mocked, but nobody else. You know, because that's in this part of early 19th century, you know, early 19th century rural England, this is pre-industrial revolution. People are not making great fortunes in trade quite yet. And the idea that you would, you know, you could have a fortune other than from land and from inherited land is not really conceived of. If you This book written 50 years later is a very, very different book because there's an industrialist. I mean, this this is what... Trollope is about, and this is what Dickens ends up being about. I mean, the book is completely divorced also, though, from the political stuff that was going on at the time as well. I mean, there's just no – these the soldiers, what are the soldiers soldiers for? Who are they fighting? Where might they go? There's no sense of consequence to, to being a soldier. It's all about a, a uniform and the ability to turn heads. You know, maybe this is one reason why this book really, really lasts in a way that some of the mid-19th and late 19th century books don't quite in the same way, is that it takes place in sort of this fantasy land of any place, any time. It's not that specific. The world, as we understand it, the grand events of life and death doesn't intrude on it, which allows us all to identify with it. I think that's part of it for sure. I mean, one other question I have is, why is it that there are so many of these classic books that endure that have these plucky heroines who won't play by the rules? Is it just that those are the ones we still like? Like, so, okay, we've got Elizabeth Bennett in Pride and Prejudice. We've got Joe March in Little Women. We've got, you know, Laura Ingalls Wilder. We've got Anne of Green Gables. I mean, I realize I'm spanning young adult and proper novels and centuries here. But typically, the most beloved book, a book that endures, has a plucky heroine who is frustrated by the conventions of her day and breaks the rules, right? I mean, I I feel like we see this all the time. And I'm curious about whether these characters were equally appealing to the readers in their day or they're appealing to modern readers because we find the strictures described in these books so different from our own time. I mean, I have an incredibly obvious answer for this, which is that the people who read novels are women. And is it any surprise that women take a shine to novels about plucky young women, you know, often very literary plucky young women. Seems to me the most natural thing in the world. 
Do these other characters you mentioned, Julia, are, are they known for their wit? Are they known for being sly and for being able to hold their own in the, in the drawing room in matters of conversation? They're all rule breakers of different sorts. Some of them are more rule breakers by being active rather than by feeling constrained by the drawing room rather than by wanting to be arch in the drawing room. But they all break the rules. I love these settings for the courtships, the fact that they people come and visit your house and stay for like 12 weeks and they're just there in your drawing room every day and there's no TV or internet to distract you. So the highlight is to take a turn around the room with someone and gossip and it all unfolds in that manner. I find that fascinating and such a welcome difference from my current dating life, which can involve, you know, internet dating where you meet someone with absolutely no context instead of someone you've seen interact with their sisters or with your mother for weeks on end uh, when there's nothing to do all day. I sort of wish we could have that kind of courtship again. If you started a dating site that was like the Jane Austen dating site, first of all, (laughs) you would have so many literary young lovelies falling at your feet. Second of all, you could just come up with all kinds of Jane Austen-y activities to do. There apparently is an annual Jane Austen Regency Ball where you, you know, you have your fancy dress and your vintage dances. Maybe I should go. I want to counter this for a second, which is that so one of the great set pieces of the book, my I think my favorite part of the book, in fact, is when Jane falls ill at Netherfield and has to stay and then Lizzie has to go and nurse her. And then these scenes of Lizzie at, at Netherfield are where Darcy starts to realize, oh, you know, she has more than fine eyes. She has a great carriage and also a sharp tongue. But I had a friend who shall remain nameless, who had a date with a young woman when we were, he and I were in a group house together and he had a date with her. And there was a huge storm the night of their date, just like a gigantic epic storm. So she couldn't get home. They shut the metro. She literally couldn't get home and she stayed at our house. And then to add insult to injury, there was a huge storm the next day. And we developed this very close bond of her in our house And then she stayed a third day because the metro was still closed. So they had this first date, which literally lasted for, you know, 78 hours. And it was close and it was all this special time and they were in his community. And it was awful. They never saw each other again afterwards. It (laughs) couldn't have been worse. Was he a gentleman of superior consequence? He was. He was. He was. uh, He was a gentleman of superior consequence. And Uh, did you at any point take a turn about the room with her? I or ended pause. up hanging out with her. Yeah, sure. Yeah, we, you know, we watched some reality TV together. And those was the early 90s, so there probably wasn't even reality TV. There were the very beginnings of reality TV. But don't you think, actually, Seth, that the experience of living this would be narrowing? I mean, the idiocy, the idiocy of rural life, that you would meet so few people, your choices would be so constrained that, it, you know, merely the arrival of some one random person could turn your world upside down. That would be, that'd be a world I wouldn't really want to live in. I want a bit more choice than what's offered here. Maybe not as much choice as you're offered in the world of, you know, jmatch.gov or wherever you <laughs> date these days. Yes, constantly hanging out on jmatch.gov. You can look for my profile there. You know, it's the, uh, the paralysis of choice. I think there would be some fun in being in a small town and having a mysterious new eligible stranger arrive. But you know what? This reminds me of the, of the thing I wanted to mention about why I think this book has endured so much, which we haven't touched on yet, which is the plotting is so tight and so to our modernized conventional, it, you know, there's on the very first page, we learn that this mysterious, rich, eligible stranger is arriving on the scene at Netherfield. That is what a screenwriter would call an inciting incident. And that happens right away on basically the first page. And then end of act one, we introduce the problem of the estate being entailed and Collins shows up and throws a wrench into the works. And then just when that's flagging, we, we have our, our Lydia and Wickham subplot and there are no loose ends. Everything 
connect. Every character is there for a reason and serves a purpose. And it's all tied up with a happy ending. It's so well plotted and, and it's such a Hollywood, uh, you know, five act perfect narrative arc. There was a, a slate piece written, it must have been like 1998, I think by Sarah Kerr, where she's talking about Jane Austen. She says she wrote these freakishly perfect books. And that phrase has always stuck with me because it's totally true. Right. And even some of the things that seem slightly too coincidental, possibly, like the fact that the person about whom Collins fawns so obsequiously happens to be the aunt of Darcy and conveniently be the mother of the person to whom he is reputed to be betrothed. I feel like as a modern reader, you just chalk that up to like, eh, all these inbred gentlemen in British society. Of course, that makes sense. That seems perfectly fine. It doesn't read as a gaping coincidence the way it might in a modern romantic comedy. In some ways, the book is so much like a modern romantic comedy. If it came out today, would it get any respect as a piece of literature or would it just be, you know, lumped in with chiclet and people would say, oh, it's so readable. It's like Gone Girl. It's just a really smart, great, tightly plotted piece of chiclet. Well, first of all, they have slightly different endings, Gone Girl and... (laughs) And Pride and Prejudice. Second of all, it's it's impossible to divorce these two things from each other. It's like saying, gosh, Citizen Kane, Citizen Kane just seems so, you know, conventional. Well, of course it seems conventional because everyone has stolen the things that Citizen Kane did and made them cliches. Pride and Prejudice defines the form of the rom-com. That's where the rom-com comes from. It's from Pride and Prejudice and a few other books like it. And so much of what we see comes out of it. I mean, we haven't even talked about the you know, Bridget Jones's Diary or Bride and Prejudice or Clueless of Emma, the many adaptations of these things, which fit absolutely perfectly. Even if it's the originator of all romantic comedy, the notion that romantic comedy can be considered sort of great literature in the pantheon of all-time wonderful works of art, which I think people say about Jane Austen, most people would not say about a perfectly turned romantic comedy today, right? Right. I guess that's true. But there are small books that people still say are great books. I mean, I don't read her, but Marilyn Robinson. She doesn't write rom-coms, but she writes small domestic books, which people say are masterpieces. Yeah, but they're like about searching for faith and your existential place on the planet. I think these characters are so sharply drawn, and some of the turns of phrase and the language are... Uh, so amazingly double-edged that it would rise above simple genre romance. The writing's just too good. Are there particular moments you guys want to highlight? Are there any passages we should look at? All of us should sit and reread the Catherine de Bourgh-Lizzie exchange, which is the greatest scene perhaps in all of literature ever of all time, in any case, ever. (laughs) What do you think that, David, because Lizzie shows her backbone or because the insults are so withering or what, what is it about that that grabs yes so the insult just like the wow wow and just they're so sharp but both of them are so so funny you can read have nothing it. further read to say to me <laughs> wait hold on a second i gotta find it though i know it must be a scandalous falsehood though i would not injure him so much as to suppose the truth of it possible i instantly resolved on setting off for this place that i might make my sentiments known to you if you believed it impossible to be true said elizabeth coloring with astonishment disdain i wonder you took the trouble of coming so far I love that. I don't know. The whole th- I I mean you we can't we can't read it. No, don't read the whole thing, but read like two more lines. Just give some evidence for your hyperbole. All right. Do you pay no regard to the wishes of his friends to his tacit engagement with Mr. Berg? Have you lost every feeling of propriety and delicacy? Have you not heard me say that from his earliest hours he was destined for his cousin? Yes, and I had heard it before. But what is that to me? If there is no other objection to my marrying your nephew, I shall certainly not be kept from it by knowing that his mother and aunt wished him to marry Mr. Berg. 
You both did as much as you could in planning the marriage. Its completion depended on others. If Mr. Darcy is neither by honor nor inclination confined to his cousin, why is he not to make another choice? And if I am that choice, why may I not accept him? Because honor, decorum, prudence, nay, interest forbid it. Yes, Miss Bennet, interest, for do not expect to be noticed by his family or friends. If you willfully act against the inclinations of all, you will be censured, slighted, and despised by everyone connected with him. Your alliance will be disgrace. Your name will never even be mentioned by any of us. These are heavy misfortunes, replied Elizabeth, but the wife of Mr. Darcy must have such extraordinary sources of happiness necessarily attached to her situation that she could, upon the whole, have no cause to repine. <laughs> Obstinate, headstrong girl, I'm ashamed of you. Is this your gratitude for my attentions to you last spring? Is nothing due to me on that score? That is great. One of the passages that I noticed and sort of marked off was she's talking about uh, Charlotte Lucas accepting Mr. Collins's proposal. And she talks about how Charlotte is pretty happy to get the whole courting period over with, just get to the marriage, because it wasn't that much fun for her to be courted by Mr. Collins. And the phrase that Austin uses is, speaking of Collins, the stupidity with which he was favored by nature must guard his courtship from any charm that could make a woman wish for its continuance. <laughs> <laughs> that is totally excellent. I do love the Collins of that marriage because, you know, we've all had these situations where we've thought about friends and thinking, like, should they settle? Should he settle for her? Should she settle for him? And sometimes you conclude, well, maybe, maybe that person should just settle and it would be okay, even though it's not perfect. <laughs> That's one of the things, as I've gotten a little older, it's made me um, love Jane Austen books even more. Because I think, you know, in your in your early 20s, when you're in high school or college, people will just sort of fall into these relationships. But now that I'm in my 30s and I watch people pairing off, there's a little bit more pragmatism involved and the stakes are a little bit higher. And it feels a lot more like a Jane Austen novel to me. People are making calculations broader than what might inspire them to romantically cross a more. Perhaps people are guided not so much by their passions, but by slightly more practical calculations. I think that's true. And I think part of what I say when I set up Dana's opposition between the Bronte people and the Austin people has something to do with that, with being a, a pragmatic and practical person. But I also think one of the reasons I love this book and one of the things I love about the Darcy Elizabeth love story at the core of it is that it's not a love at first sight story. I mean, I think... So many of the great classical romances are love at first sight and then love is thwarted through external circumstance or, I mean, Bingley and Jane, right? That's a love at first sight essentially story and, and they're thwarted by all kinds of, of mistakes and mishaps. That's the more classic or one of the classic rom-com tropes. And then Elizabeth and Darcy have the other one, which is at first they hate each other and they have to come together to only realize how much they love each other, which is, of course, equally well-trod in modern cinema. But to me, it just feels truer to life that you sort of have to get to know somebody before you know whether you're in love with them. Two points to that. One is that you guys probably know this, but this the Pride and Prejudice's original title was First Impressions. So that was certainly the point she was trying to convey. The other question I had for you guys, and I, you may not know the answer, but perhaps our listeners do. If you were reading this cold in 1813, you got sent a copy of this new novel, Pride and Prejudice, and you opened it up and you started to read it, would you know, in the way that we know, because we know everything about rom-coms, that Lizzie and Darcy are going to end up together? Is that something which is just obvious to its original audience, or is it only obvious to us because it sets the form and we now we know to be expecting this? I just have to imagine that given the way they introduced Darcy as the gentleman of the most consequence of anyone we're going to meet and the 
and the dramatic terms in which his fortune and his bearing and his fine figure are described, we know that this guy is going to play a big role in the story. Otherwise, she wouldn't have bothered to build him up so much. So I think the reader of the day might have had an inkling that that, that was in the offing. That sounds like a fair guess. I think it's impossible to know. My mother's an English professor who's taught this book many times. I'm going to ask her. She's a scholar of 19th century England. I want to ask her tonight. I'm having dinner with her tonight. All right. I'll ask her and report back. (laughs) We haven't talked a lot about the class stuff going on, the money issues going on. And do you guys feel like it's a cop out that Lizzie ends up with the richest guy on the scene? Does that bother you? I mean, is it is it okay to have that be the happy ending? Is that what the entire audience craves and Jane Austen couldn't let them down? Or is that something that always sticks in your craw? It sticks in my craw a little bit, I think. It makes the book more conservative than it feels like it's going to be at the outset when you meet the sprightly character, right? And she doesn't have to compromise anything. She has to learn to be less judgmental and bratty, but that's it. She gets to have a marriage marked by intellectual equality and regard and attraction and uh, also a sweet estate at Pemberley with like mad lanes to drive around on in a phaeton and a fishing pond. She's just basically freed by authorial magic from the sorts of compromises that a lot of the other characters have to make. And Austin takes pains to make us know that Lizzie is not money driven. I mean, she she could have settled for Collins and solved a lot of problems for her family, but she wouldn't do it. And her, and her father even basically forbade her from doing it. Later on, her father, when he's uh, asking her if she really wants to get married to Mr. Darcy after she'd been badmouthing him so much, he, you know, he, he says, sure, you're going to have you know, finer things than even Jane will have in more carriages, but that's not what's important here. What's important is that you're happy and you're in love with him. So there is an effort to downplay the, the issue of the money, but gosh, isn't it convenient that she ends up with a man who has, you know, more than 10000 a year or whatever it is. Uh, it it does bother me a little bit, but I, I, I think, uh, you know, to go back to my point that Jane Austen is the ultimate screenwriter, I think she understood the importance of a Hollywood ending, and, she, and so she gave it to us. Just to your class point, Seth, and another aspect of that that I was thinking about, because, of course, I've been watching Downton Abbey. Are you guys watching Downton Abbey? I'm not only watching it, David, I'm writing about it. I know you're writing about it, yes. (laughs) But are you, Julia, watching it? No, I've given up on it. I think it's become too boring. What's, of course, missing in Pride and Prejudice, with one fascinating notable exception, is the downstairs, right? There is no talking about the servant class. The servants don't speak. They have no significant role. But did you notice the one significant role they have? They offer the ultimate bona fides for Darcy right. when she goes to Pemberley. Right. The housekeeper vouches for Darcy. And that, it's like the magical moment. This person, because she is not, I guess, she, you know, why is she authentic? Why do we think that she's authentic in a way that other people aren't? But that is when Lizzie realizes that he must be a good guy if this person was going to speak up for him. Well, right. I mean, I think it's that if you are someone who is proud and disdainful to those around you, a prejudiced woman like Elizabeth might assume that you would be very proud and disdainful to your employees and not have them singing your praises as a kind, sweet, generous man. So it's doubly surprising, I think, that she gets the speech of love and loyalty from the housekeeper when she goes to Pemberley. It's like in the all the OK Cupid profiles I see from women who, when they say what kind of man they're looking for, and I see this mentioned again and again, someone who is kind to the waitstaff. That seems to be an important thing. <laughs> That seems like a low, a <laughs> low, a low. It does seem like a low, a low bar. bar. It does seem like a low bar, but I see it mentioned again and again in profiles. Like, you know, what what kind of man do I want? Well, he should be between thirty and forty-five, and he should be really kind to waiters. Man, <laughs> is that why you keep striking out, Seth? <laughs> I, just, I just throw the salt shake at the waiter the second he approaches the table. <laughs> right. 
No, it is interesting, though, that there's no class component. I mean, they're sort of all variations of wealthy and shabby gentlemen, but there's not. No, there's class component. It's just not oriented around servant class. And certainly right. there's the implication, you know, when the Wickham and Lydia have moved themselves out of the proper class by their behavior. I mean, the implication then sort of put away, but that the gardeners, because they're workers, they don't belong with gentlemen. Now, Darcy disproves that by offering the fishing pond to Gardner, but that's certainly the Carolyn Bingley doesn't think that the gardeners are appropriate company. Right. I think those sisters are so are such great and recognizable characters. What they're chocolate covered spiders. They're all smiles and politeness on the outside and just constant scheming on the inside. They're so easily hateable. What do you guys think of the character of Jane? I mean, Jane is sort of set up as a counterpoint to Lizzie, right? Because she's she has no prejudice whatsoever. You can't get her to say a mean word about anyone. She has to be basically completely betrayed by Caroline Bingley before she even admits that maybe she's not quite as nice as she once thought. In some ways, over the course of the book, Elizabeth learns to be a little bit more like Jane, and that's part of how her life turns around and she ends up with Darcy. But um, I think we're not supposed to take the lesson that she should go all the way in the Jane direction, right? I mean, Jane just ends up being kind of a sap for her lack of prejudice. And Jane's kind of boring, right? I think, the you know, the idea with uh, with Bingley and Jane is they're very sweet people and they're all brightness and light, but they're sort of boring. They're not that fun for, say, Lizzie to talk to, I guess. And so, you know, even though Jane is incredibly sweet and incredibly beautiful, she's not a figure of a lot of envy for the reader, right? She's not, you don't want to be Jane, do you? You just, you want to be Lizzie. Right. Right. And you don't really want to hang out with Jane that much either. It seems like it'd be much more fun to hang out with Lizzie. Why do we think that Bingley and Darcy are friends? It's totally unclear. Do we know how they, they met? They're total bros. And I wonder if, you know, if Darcy keeps them around to keep things light and, and be the smiling front to Darcy's uh, dark and cloudy <laughs> ballast. Do we remember how they first came to be friends? I don't think it's in the book. Their relationship is not well sketched, Jane. Take it back to the drawing board. <laughs> All you need to know about Jane and Bingley is that it took a question of yours 45 minutes into a, this discussion for us to even say their names. They play so little part in the you're the psychic landscape that we've created about this book that they're just not that important. They don't say anything interesting. They don't do anything interesting there. They're there to move the plot along, and they're there to be foils, but they aren't there to provide any of the pleasure that the book actually provides. That seems true. But Julia, you have not, unlike Seth and me, you haven't mentioned a favorite part of the book. Oh, my gosh. There's too many parts to love. I really like the tempestuous horribly done proposal of Darcy and then the letter exchange the next day, just the the moodiness of those two and their complete inability to communicate is amusing and sort of tragic and, and hilarious. But I think mostly I'm with Seth, just every single arch little turn of phrase about humankind rings with truth that seems equally true about how people are 200 years later. One of the things I noticed in this reading is that Jane Austen basically called out the humble brag 200 years before Twitter and the humble brag. At one point, Darcy says, nothing is more deceitful than the appearance of humility. It is often only carelessness of opinion and sometimes an indirect boast. It's like, right, people have been humble bragging for centuries. And Jane Austen called it centuries ago. And it's still funny to read about. But that little phrase actually comes in the middle of a debate between Elizabeth and Bingley during that stretch that you talked about, David, where they're they're sort of trapped at Netherfield waiting for Jane to recover. You know, there is a lot of explicit conversation about pride in the book. I mean, I think in some ways, if you think about what pride means and pride and prejudice, well, Darcy is very proud at the beginning and not very nice to those around him. And 
Elizabeth develops prejudices based on his pride and then they can't get along until he gets over his pride and she gets over her prejudice. And maybe that's all there is to it. But do you think there's more going on with with the constant returning to the theme of pride and what pride means and whether people have it and what the difference is between pride and vanity? I mean, do you guys take anything enduring away about that? I think Lizzie exhibits a pride that I like, which is she thinks herself worthy. Even, you know, she doesn't let the fact that her family is slightly ridiculous and doesn't know how to behave at the ball, she doesn't let that bring down her feelings of self-worth. She's got a lot of pride in who she is. She knows that she's smart and she's willing to stand up for herself when she has to. And you don't see a lot of that kind of pride in the other female characters in the book. And so I, I like that sense of pride within it. The affirmative pride. Yeah, exactly. Not not a pride that's about arrogance, but a a pride that's about self-worth and backbone. And so the pride of Darcy is a pride of, I am better than these people. I'm better than this, in particular, than this family. I'm better than this idiotic community that Bingley has dragged me to. And that's the pride that he needs to lose. He's so proud that he's willing to break up his bro's, you know, perfectly good burgeoning relationship just because he's so proud of of who he is. He doesn't want to be associated with these ninnies. Well, no, he claims that he's just worried that Jane is going to break Bingley's heart. You don't buy that? Well, that's part of it. He says that Jane's not so forthcoming with her emotions. She's a little bit inscrutable. She's a little bit hard to read. uh, And that's part of it. But he also explicitly talks about the fact that Lizzie's uh, younger sisters and her mother and even a little bit her father behaved somewhat in an unseemly manner. And then he takes pains to separate out Jane and, and Lizzie from that assessment. But that definitely played a role, I think, in his advising Bingley to steer clear of Jane. Right. I guess that's true. But in fact, talking these terms through, I'm realizing that that you're right, Seth. Both terms have a positive and negative valence in the book, right? People can be too proud, but if they have no pride, that's also not good. People can be too prejudiced like Lizzie, but if they have absolutely no ability to discern anything like Mrs. Bennett or in a slightly different flavor, Jane, those are also errors. Is Darcy's sin introversion, depression, or jerkiness? Which is the thing that is motivating him? Well, I used to think he was just shy and misunderstood because, you know, that was sort of a romantic way to think about him. And you could assume that other people in your young high school life might be equally shy and misunderstood. But um, on this read, I think he's really actually rude. And then he becomes less rude, like he actually changes. It's not just that he's shy and then he gets to know Lizzie better and opens up and she realizes he's not so bad. Like he says that his parents, you know, raised him to have little regard for those outside his small world and that he's, you know, only extends his good favor to those he knows well and tends to be not very open to those he does not, which is not, well, I guess being not open to them is introversion, but then being hostile, rude, and dismissive seems, you know, on top of that. I mean, his sister, by contrast, right, has a reputation for being kind of a bitch. But in fact, she is just shy and turns out to be sweet. And her shyness is perceived as aloof hauteur. Darcy does not suffer fools gladly. And that seems like that's sort of his major sin. He can't hide his dismissiveness of people he thinks are below him. And then he's won over by Lizzie in the in the drawing rooms of Netherfield over periods of days and days. He sees her wit and her intelligence, and it wins him over. But then what he realizes is he needs, in order to be with her and make her happy, he's going to need to suffer some fools gladly. He's going to need to make some allowances for people's weaknesses if he wants to be uh, the kind of guy that can be with Lizzie. When Mrs. Bennet comes to visit Pemberley, 
later in the sequel. Is Darcy going to behave himself towards his mother-in-law? I mean, nobody behaves themselves towards their mother-in-law. It's like an impossibility in human <laughs> existence. But I think that's what's being implied. I think we're to understand at the close of the book that that Darcy is going to make allowances for people and he is going to suffer his mother-in-law somewhat gladly, although he's not going to suffer Wickham gladly because that is an offense not of manner, but that is an offense of, of action. Uh, you know, there actually is a sequel of sorts. P.D. James wrote Death Comes to Pemberley, murder mystery right. that takes place. I actually read it. Did you? I, I read one chapter and thought it was terrible and put it down. Did you, you, know, did you get through it? It was not a superlative work. I, I got through it. It was it was fine. I enjoyed spending some time with those characters again. There was a mystery plot that kept the pages turning. I don't know. It was okay. Did Mrs. Bennett come to Pemberley? I'm trying to remember. I'm sure she does. I, I, I don't totally remember what happens. Wickham does come back to Pemberley at one point. That's the great thing about the end of the book is that Jane Austen just sort of puts everybody in their place and you assume that they won't have to rub elbows too much anymore. Like Jane Bingley gets to live near Lizzie and you assume they hang out all the time and the rest of the riffraff family stay in Hertfordshire, but the gardeners are frequent visitors at Pemberley. You know, sometimes unannounced even, the dad comes by. (laughs) Right. The dad comes solo to Pemberley. So it sounds like it all works out. All right, guys. Well, thank you for uh, giving me an excuse to reread this book and telling me why you liked it so much. Thank you. Now, Seth, it's a truth universally acknowledged. So what's up with that? (laughs) That I'm in want of a wife? That a man in possession of a very small outdoor balcony in an Indian unit washer dryer is in want of a wife? Audiobook club listeners, (laughs) be aware. (laughs) I have just taken up residence in a nearby manor. Send your fathers to come calling on me. All right. Many thanks to David, Julia, and Seth. A program note, our next audiobook club selection is Arcadia, Lauren Groff's novel about a commune in upstate New York in the 1970s. Please check it out and then join us for our discussion March 1st. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash abc. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audio Book Club in the iTunes store. And don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Abdul Rufus. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For David Plotz, Julia Turner, and Seth Stevenson, I'm Dan Coyce. Thanks for listening.